0: Years ago, I, I took karate at in Muskogee at the gym that we went to. Uh, and after a few months of being in classes, it was time for promotion test. And promotion tests in karate involved two things, at least the karate that I took, involved two sections. The first was just kind of a general knowledge of, do you know the right punches and the kicks? Can you do the katas and things like that that you've been taught? And the, sec- the second section, it, it dealt with sparring. You, they picked certain people for you to, to fight, and you fought for two to three minutes. Typically, the fights were broken up into t- several times. The more advanced you were, the more times you had to fight, and you, your, your fighting started with those who were more on par with you, whatever level you were, and they increased until you ended up sparring with black belts. And so, what the senior instructor would do is he would come along and he would say, Caitlin, you're sparring with Sarah, Red, you're going to spar with Scott. And on and on like that. And one day he came to me and he said, Stacy, you're going to spar with Tom." And, and when he said that, all the other people in the class who had been in the class long they went, "Ooh." And I don't know why they said that because Tom, I mean Tom was a, one of the instructors. He was a black belt, clearly superior martial artist to me. Uh, but he was a pretty nice guy. He was pretty laid back, and he tended to talk slow and loud. When he was a kid, something had happened. He had lost a good portion of his hearing. He wore hearing aids, but he still talked slow and loud. So I wasn't sure why they were ooing and awing about having to to fight Tom. I mean we we sparred black belts all the time, so I couldn't figure out what was unique about that. So the time came for us to get up there and we, we faced the instructor and we bowed, then we bowed at each other. When we did, he yelled at me. Like raw type of yell at me. And so I began to understand something was different and why they may have ooed and awed. And when, when the instructor, when Brian said go. Tom transformed. He became like the Tasmanian devil, hitting me with a flurry of kicks and punches and and, and, and all kinds of things. And I mean, I had sparred several times leading up to this day, but I had never in my life sparred or fought anything like this. I kind of felt like I was fighting for my very life. Before the fight was over, he roundhouse kicked me in the left side of the head so hard that the first thing that hit the ground was the right side of my head. And it was at that point I realized another reason that they oohed when I was told to spar Tom. When you go down in karate, you don't stop because they go down. You follow up and you keep punching until the instructor tells you to stop. Well... Tom came down and he was wailing on me on the ground. I was fighting to, to cover up, to kick him away, to do what I could. And the instructor's yelling, stop, break. But Tom had taken his ear, his ear things out. He couldn't hear. And so the instructor's yelling at him to stop. I'm trying to kind of help. Brian's saying stop. And he is just wailing on me. Um, by the time the match was over, it's only supposed to be two or three minutes, but I'm, I'm still fairly confident it was a two or three hour session. I I was so exhausted from fighting. I I really thought I was going to throw up. I had been hit and kicked and knocked down more times than I could count. I, I was so sore my hair hurt for a week. And one of the reasons that fight went so badly for me is because I was not prepared for the intensity Tom was going to bring. I was not mentally prepared for how hard Tom was going to fight. I wasn't physically prepared to fight that hard and that long. My lack of preparation resulted in me being treated like a punching bag for however long that match went on. I did spar Tom in later times in karate. I never fared much better, but I was always more prepared because I knew what to expect. I have a a mindset, an idea Many Christians approach spiritual battles in the same way I approached the fight with Tom, unprepared. Many are not mentally prepared for the intensity and duration of spiritual battles. Many are not intellectually prepared to know the right things and to know the reality of spiritual battles. Mentally, many are not meant are spiritually prepared to be able to effectively deal with the spiritual battles that that will absolutely will come. Into our lives. And when we're not prepared for spiritual battles. We get. We just get wailing. We just get absolutely defeated. The results can end up being tragic. Uh, We are in the portion of Ephesians. We are going to move into talking about spiritual warfare. Right. And so we're going to do this. Today we're going to do it to talk about how to prepare for spiritual battles. So open your Bible to Ephesians 6. We're going to look at verses 10 through 12 this morning. Uh, when you find that, I'm going to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I believe it's on page 898 in your pew Bible. Ephesians 6, 10-12 Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, uh, against spiritual wickedness, In high places. We're going to stop there today. title of the message is. Preparing for spiritual battles. Let's pray. Father we love you. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for all you've given and done. Guide us today as we look. At this passage Let our minds. Be open to what you have for us. Lord there are. Two groups of people in here today. Those who are in the midst of a spiritual battle. Or those who are headed to a spiritual battle. And Father we need to know what to do. We need to be prepared for it. Spiritual battles are hard, they're long, they take many forms. God, we are not we are not meant to be caught unaware. We are not meant to know what's going on. We are not meant to be unprepared for it. So help us to take your word today and apply it to our lives. Let us see what it is we need to do so we can be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and we can stand in the evil day having done all to stand. Fill us with your spirit. Uh, Let your Holy Spirit, take the word and, and sink it deep into our hearts so that it will bring forth fruit for your glory. Make us a people who are strong, strong in you, strong to fight for ourselves, for our families, for one another. Uh, use us, Lord, to, to push back the darkness and diamond to push back the darkness. Even in our own hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Ephesians six ten through 18 has been a, a defining passage in my life on more than one occasion. Many times God has used this passage to spur me on to spiritual growth, uh, to help me get out of a rut and to help me fight spiritual battles that I was currently involved in. This passage is so powerful, and so important, we're not going to rush through it. I could easily preach it in one passage, um, but we're not. We're going to take our time and spend several weeks looking at this and the armor that God gives us. But today we're starting with preparing, being prepared for spiritual battles. Now, Some things just to generally to notice. He says, my brethren. So it's it's addressed to disciples of Jesus. So Paul is laying out a charge, explaining to us, disciples of Jesus are going to be involved in spiritual battles. He is laying out a, a charge to us about what to do in order to prepare for the spiritual battles we will face. As disciples of Jesus, we have to take these words very seriously. We cannot let the idea of spiritual battles be regulated to TV shows and to fiction. It is a very real thing and it is something that very much happens. And if we are not prepared, if we do not fight, we will cave into temptation. We will be beaten in spiritual battle and we could very possibly be destroyed by the enemy. Now this passage, it doesn't seek to convince us there is a spiritual battle. It just says there is one. Right, It just just very much says there is a battle and as disciples of Jesus, we are involved in it. The passage declares to us we have a very real and a very powerful enemy. And that we must do something to prepare. There are actions we must take if we are going to be prepared for spiritual battle. We can't just sit back and hope it's all going to turn out well. Well, we can't expect that other people are going to fight our battles for us. We have to do things. We cannot ignore the realities. We cannot just hope they get better. We cannot be passive. We must be active. And that's kind of the point Paul is making in this passage. Spiritual battles require intentional preparation. Spiritual battles require intentional preparation. What Paul is telling us in this passage, it's not meant to just be given for information so that we can quote the passage and we can know that it's there. We're meant to actually do something with what he says, and we're meant to do something because he has said it. But we are to be proactive, take the initiative, prepare ourselves for the battles we'll face. In this particular passage, there are three ways we intentionally prepare First is be strong in the Lord. Now this is likely the most important truth. If we do this, we should do everything else. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Paul lays great stress on our need to rely on God's strength by using three different words. Power, strong, and might. These words refer to God being able to exert the force needed to do something. Paul wants us to understand we can't fight these battles on our own. We're not strong enough on our own to be able to fight them. Instead, we need God's strength. We need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. No matter how physically strong we are, our physical strength is insufficient for the battles we face. No matter how spiritually strong we are on our own, our spiritual power is insufficient for the battles we'll face. In order to, as, as he says later, to stand and keep on standing, it takes a strength that comes only from God. God has the power and God gives us this power. Right? What Paul says here about being strong in the Lord and the power of his might, it's kind of the culmination of stuff he said earlier that we've already looked at. So we'll quickly look at some of the things Paul's already said. Look back at Ephesians 1 and 15. Ephesians one fifteen through twenty-three is Paul's one of Paul's prayers for the Ephesians. Now, we don't have time to look at the whole passage, but what I, I want us to see is just a few things. First, in verse 17, Paul's prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of Glory, would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge, and that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. Right, so Paul's prayers for the Holy Spirit to come upon us, to open our eyes. To illuminate so that we can understand some things about God. right? That's the point. That we would know some things about God. And then verse 19 is the one we're going to focus on for today. What is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power. So part of what Paul wants us to know. What the Holy Spirit to reveal to us. Is the greatness of God's power toward us who believe that works. In His mighty power. Now each of the words Paul uses to describe power means something slightly different. When he talks about power. Seeding greatness of His power. It's where we get the word, the Greek word used is the word we get the word dynamite and dynamo from. It speaks of God's power being exceedingly Great. It it almost carries with the idea of an explosive kind of power that is great and unlimited. It cannot be measured. It cannot be comprehended. It is far above and beyond anything we can comprehend in our natural minds. Second, he talks about the working of His mighty power. And this carries with the idea that God's power has the energy to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. So, we need power to share the gospel. God has power that works in us and enables us to. We need power to live a holy life. God has the power that He gives to us to work to enable us to. We need power to stand in spiritual battles and fight. God has that power and He gives it to us to work in us. And this power is also mighty. right? It is beyond our capability to do something we could never do. And then He refers to power again at the end of verse 19. And it's a different word from the first of it. And it carries with the idea of overcoming or maybe conquering. So when we look at... All of this together. What we see is what Paul wants us to know. He wants us to know. The incredible greatness of God's power. That works in us. It is mighty to do what needs to be done. And it enables us to conquer. And to overcome. Anything that would come against us. And that power is for. All who believe. So it's not for Paul the Apostle. It's not for Jeremiah the prophet. It's not for Philip the deacon. It is for Stacy the preacher. It is for Scott the song leader. It is for Gerald the deacon. It is for everybody. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this power is for you. So the Holy Spirit wants us to understand the greatness of God's power for us Now, as you're turning back to Ephesians 6, stop just for a second at Ephesians 3.20. Another prayer of Paul for it, but I just want to look at one verse. We don't have time to look at all of it. Now, to him who is able to exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. So how great is God's power? It's so great we can't even fathom it. It's so great we can't even imagine. The greatest thing we can imagine, God would do this, that would be the biggest thing ever. That is nothing. To God. He can do far above anything we could ask or imagine. Okay, turn back to Ephesians 6. So, we need that power if we're going to be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand. If we're going to fight and win spiritual battles, we need to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. How do we do that? Because we all want it. How do we do it? Well, it boils down to our relationship with Jesus. Think about the story of the vine and the branches Jesus tells. But as we are connected, we are the he is the vine, we are the branches as we are connected to him. He says we can do all things, but without him, he says, we can do nothing. So there if we are close to Jesus, we have the ability flowing from Jesus into us. To fight and win spiritual battles. If we are disconnected from Jesus, we do not have the power. We do not have what we need to be able to fight and win spiritual battles. So what we have to do is make sure our connection to Jesus is firm. Everything rises and falls on our connection to Jesus. It always will. Everything ultimately always comes back to that. To be strong in the Lord, the power of His might, I must be connected to Jesus. If I am connected to Him, everything from Him flows into me and enables me to stand and fight. If I'm disconnected, I wither and die, and I am gathered and tossed into the fire. Everything, 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 hinges on our relationship with Jesus. So what we've got to do is be sure our relationship with Jesus is close. It's firm, secure. And there are basic, simple ways to do this. It's not complicated. God didn't mean for it to be complicated. Right? Read my Bible faithfully. Jesus repeatedly in John 15 stresses the importance of His Word. In John 8, He stresses the importance of His Word. The Word is Critically important to our being close to Jesus. If we want to know what He has said, we want to know what He has done, we want to know the truth that sets us free, we must read the Bible faithfully. Second, we must pray consistently. Some have said that reading the Bible is God talking to us, praying is our talking to God. You can look at it that way. That would be a fine way to think of it. In a relationship, it takes two-way communication, right? Right? You have to talk to them, they have to talk to you, pray and read your Bible, they go together. We must pray consistently. It's not enough to pray in the moment of battle. We must be praying before, we must be praying dif- during, and we must continue to pray after. We must make church a priority. The church is an organization Jesus Christ founded. He bought it with His precious Blood. The church is the institution that Jesus uses to conquer the gates of hell. It is a part of the way God intends to work in the world. And we will never be close to Jesus if we do not commit ourselves to His church. And then we must fast occasionally. Take some time and read in the Gospels, Matthew and Mark particularly, where the man brought his son to Jesus who was demon-possessed. And the disciples could not cast the demon out. And when they asked Jesus why they couldn't. He said because this kind comes not out. It doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting. The reality is there are some spiritual battles we will never win apart from fasting. Fasting is a crucifying of the flesh. It is a saying I need God more than I need anything else. And there are some battles we will never win. If we are not willing to crucify the flesh through fasting. Now these aren't new Or revolutionary ideas. If I were to write a book on how to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might and had four chapters and it was those, nobody would buy it. Because it's not exciting, it's not cool, it's not new. But here's the reality. That's what works. The books out there that are 43 chapters long about all these new and cool and different ideas, do you know what they are? Useless, largely. If we want to be close to Jesus, we have to read our Bible. Faithfully, not just once a month or once a week. Faithfully. If we're going to be close to Jesus, we have to pray consistently. We have to be a part of His church. His church. It's His church, His bride. And spiritual battles require fasting at times. That's it. I mean, it, it, it is very simple. But the simple nature of it can be deceiving because those aren't easy to do. It's simple. I mean, nobody in here is looking at that going, man, I never heard that list before. But how many of us in here do this list on the regular? How many of us read our Bible faithfully? How many of us pray consistently? How many of us are truly committed to church and make it a priority? When was the last time we fasted for a spiritual battle? See, the simpleness of it is is deceptive. It's simple, but boy, they're, they're hard to do because you start trying to read your Bible... You have an enemy that does everything he can to keep you from your Bible. You start trying to pray consistently. You have an enemy that will do everything he can to keep you from prayer. You want to be a part of church? Be faithful to it? You have an enemy that gives you 10,000 other things you could do rather than come to church. You want to fast? You have an enemy that makes food smell 100 times better than it's ever smelled before. The moment you say you're going to do without. Spiritual battles require intentional preparation. This starts with being strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Secondly, we have to know the enemy. One of the most basic principles of warfare stated in the words, Know your enemy. This is why the government spends millions of dollars on spies and spy satellites. This is why every combat unit in every branch of the military has either scouts or a surveillance team of some sort. This is why fighters watch Fight tapes of guys they'll be fighting. This is why football teams watch game tapes of the teams they will be playing. The better we know our enemy, the better we can plan on how to fight them. And what is true in the physical realm is just as true in the spiritual realm. Now, for us though, it is far easier for us to gain intel on our enemy than it is for a soldier to gain intel on their enemy. For Scripture reveals virtually everything we need to know about Satan. And his demons. For the most part it is here. In English. In whatever translation we can best understand. All for the taking. In fact it is so accessible. To gain information about the enemy. That ignorance of the enemy is almost inexcusable. For a disciple of Jesus. Because it is not the ignorance that comes from I don't know. It is a a willful choice. I am choosing not. That's the only way we don't have enemy or have information about our enemy is if we are willfully choosing, I am not going to read the book that tells me about him. If I want to know my enemy, I have to be in the book that tells me about him. Right? And so Paul, in verse 11, Paul talks about the wiles of the devil. Right? Now Wiles refers to deceitful tricks. And methods Satan uses to deceive and destroy uh, human beings. His ultimate goal for these wiles is to wreak as much havoc as he can. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus said. There are many ways he employs his wiles. But there are probably four primary categories most wiles will fall into. First, Satan tempts us. Satan tempts. In Matthew 4, 3, Satan came to tempt Jesus. That's a pretty big deal. Satan will come to tempt Jesus. He will come to tempt us. Now, when Satan comes to tempt, I believe there are four main lies he uses. First, he'll say, it's no big deal. Right? I mean, and and no big deal can come in a lot of ways. Culture's changed, so that's not really as big a deal as it was a hundred years ago. It can come in the form of, Okay, but compared to what they're doing, I mean, they're doing this and you're doing that, so it's no big deal in, in comparison. But it's no big deal. It's not, it's not that bad. No one will ever know. Another lie Satan tells us to try to tempt us into sin. No one will ever know. Now, Scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out, but Satan says no one will ever know. You think about, and I mentioned this Wednesday night, think about politicians who are busted in affairs and doing other things. Why? Why in the age in which we live, in which your phone can be hacked, your cloud can be hacked, and people can track you, why do they have affairs? Why do they send those sort of pics to people? Why do they receive those sort of pics from followers? Because they believe no one will ever know. They will never get caught. They're smarter than those who were caught before them. That's the devil. That's a lie. You deserve this. That's another lie Satan tells us. One of the things Satan always wants us to do is to think about ourselves. Any thought that puts us at the center, you can be sure that did not come from God. Because God puts Himself at the center. God puts the Son at the center. God puts the Kingdom at the center. But God most assuredly never puts you I at the center. So any thought that comes into our mind that says, You deserve it. You're the center. You should do what you want. Make no mistake. That is the devil. Lying. And deceiving to tempt you. And then you don't have a choice. You were born this way. There's nothing you can do to help it. This is just who you are. This is just how you are. You don't have a choice. Go ahead and give in to it. These are all a part of Satan's schemes to destroy. 1 Thessalonians is an interesting passage because Paul was concerned Satan had tempted them to turn from the faith. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, it's interesting, they weren't being tempted to turn to sin. They were just being tempted to turn away from their faith. When they came to Jesus, they began to suffer for Jesus. And so Paul had, they suffered so badly, Paul had to leave. So Paul was afraid for them. He was afraid the suffering had gotten so bad, the devil had convinced them, better to turn from your faith, better to turn away from Jesus and go back to the way you were. And if they did, they would be given into Satan's temptation. I think it's safe to conclude from this. Anytime someone turns from their faith and their devotion to Jesus, they have given in to Satan's temptations. Because God the Father is not leading us to turn from our faith and devotion to Jesus. God the Son is not leading us to turn from our faith and devotion to Him. God the Holy Spirit is never leading us to turn from our faith and devotion to Him. So, where does the temptation to turn from our faith and devotion to Jesus come from? The world, the flesh, the devil, but never, never God. Satan tempts. Satan also deceives. Jesus said, Satan is the father of lies. Uh, Revelation 12, it says, Satan is the one who deceives the whole world. Joshua 9 talks about my favorite example of Satan's temptation, or Satan's deception, and that is the Gibeonites. You should read that chapter, it's really interesting. Just a quick summary. Joshua goes in to conquer the promised land. They're told, do not make any alliances with the people of the land. They go in, they start to conquer, they start to win, God's fighting for them. And a people called the Gibeonites hear about it and they're afraid. And so they go and they determine to go and try to make a treaty with Joshua, but they're afraid. Joshua won't just make a treaty with them because they're people of the land. So they put on old ratty clothes, they get moldy bread, and they get wineskins skins that are all brittle. And then they ride their horses really hard and they come in and they say, we want to make an alliance with you. Joshua said, oh, we can't do it. We don't know who you are. We don't know where you're from. You might just be from right over there. And we can't make alliances with people like that. And they said, oh, no, no, no. No, we're from really far away. These clothes, they were brand new when we left. This bread, this moldy bread, fresh out of the oven. These were brand new wineskins. Look at how brittle they are. Oh, wait, we've ridden a long way. And the Bible says, Joshua looked at their clothing, looked at their food, looked at their stuff, did not seek the Lord, and so made an alliance with them, which was contrary to what God had said. So a Gibeonite is one who encourages someone to do something contrary to God's will by appealing to natural senses, while discouraging them from seeking God's word or God's will for guidance. So anytime someone is saying, oh, don't worry about what the Bible says, you just follow your heart. Make no mistake, that's a Gibeonite. That is a satanic Gibeonite trying to deceive someone, to turn them away from God. Satan accuses. We're gonna to have to hurry. Satan accuses. Revelation 12 and 10. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. You ever, you ever wake up one day and, and you you just feel condemned. I mean you feel you are the worst person that's ever lived. You're a terrible husband. You're a terrible wife. You're a terrible parent. You're a terrible Christian. You you kind of stink it at all of life. Where does that come from you wonder? Where do those feelings of condemnation come from? Or, or you ever, maybe your mind goes back to sins of your past. You think, oh, so ashamed of those the things, I I hate those. Oh, I, how who can I? How can I serve Jesus? How can I talk about Jesus given what I've done? I I am not worthy. I, I've just done such terrible things. Where does that that sort of condemnation, that accusation, come from? Do you wonder? Or do you ever have like what you might call a vain regret, a mistake you've made in the past? But you can't undo it, right? There's no going back and fixing it. But your mind is so focused on it, it runs your whole day. Oh, golly, I can't believe I did that. Where do you think that comes from? Make no mistake. That's the accuser. That is the accuser telling you you're not worthy. That's not God. That's the accuser telling you your past sin keeps you from present faithfulness. That's not God. That is the accuser telling you to focus on what you can't fix rather than do something you can do something about. That is the accuser. Make no mistake of that. It is the accuser. He accuses. And then the last one he separates. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18. Paul had a great desire to go see the Thessalonians and to be with the believers there and he had tried to go, but he was unable. Scripture says Satan had prevented him from going. And then Galatians and first, Second Corinthians are, are kind of the same. Paul had preached the gospel, planted the churches. People had come along and, and, and teaching a false doctrine. And Paul had called the false doctrine out and called the false teachers out. And the people in Galatians, the people at Corinth had turned against Paul because of that. That Paul asked the people in Galatia, he said, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? To the people in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he kind of talks to them about closing their hearts off to him. And what's happened is Satan has brought deception into the church. Paul was calling them back to the truth. Well, the devil doesn't want that, so he's trying to separate these people from Paul. He doesn't want them to listen to someone that's going to call them back to Jesus and the right way of life. So what Satan did then is what Satan does now. Right? He actively works to keep people from the church. You know, We talked about be faithful to church, make it a priority. These are things we, I think we have to think about. I don't think we often do. Who leads people to skip church? Who leads people to stay home and watch Desperate Housewives rather than come to church? Is it the God who planned the church? Is it the Son who shed His blood to form the church and redeem the church? Is it the Spirit that brought the church together and empowers the church to make a difference in the world? Or or would it be the world, the flesh, and the devil that wants to do all it can to destroy the church? Which do you think is working to keep people from coming to church? Make no mistake, it is not God. Trying to keep people from church. It is not God the Father. It is not God the Son. It is not God the Holy Spirit. That keeps people from church. It is the devil. The world. The flesh. Or the devil. But never God. And who is it? That's trying to keep people. From those who want to point them to Jesus. You ever tried to reach someone. You're trying to help them come to Christ. Or stay with Christ. And they. Cut you off. They don't want to hear what you have to say. Why? Why do they do that? Now, they want you to believe it's all your fault. You're too pushy. You're too naggy. You're too forward. But that's not it. That's really not it, it's the devil. The devil has a plan for their life. The devil is trying to lead them away from Jesus. And you're messing up his plans by talking to them about Jesus. By encouraging them to get back to Jesus. By drawing them to the church. And he wants them to get away from you to the best of his abilities. He doesn't want you to influence them. So you ruin his plans to steal, kill and destroy in their lives. Now, these are just some of the plans and schemes mentioned in Scripture key takeaway, Satan is real. He is scheming to destroy our marriages, our children, our souls, our churches, our communities, our friends, our fellow church members. We cannot be naive about Satan's schemes to destroy. We cannot see people giving in to those sort of things and not acknowledge it for what it is we cannot see in our life us giving into those sort of things and not acknowledge it for what it is if we are naive about Satan's schemes we will be destroyed we will not stand we will not be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. we must know the enemy and then finally we must fight the right enemy Verse 12 says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Man, that's a hard part right there. Because the the principalities, we wrestle against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You know, I can't see them. But I can sure see the people. I, I can see the Gibeonites leading people astray. I can see... The accusers on the television. I I can see the scoffers mocking Christianity. I, I can see those who promote things God calls wicked and an abomination. I can see them. And it's easy to focus on them as the enemy. But they're not. Ultimately. In a lot of ways. They're victims of the enemy. Paul would. Say in First Timothy. They have been taken captive. To do his will. The real enemy. Is the devil. It's not a politician. It's not a political. A uh, movie star. It's not a military leader. It's not a talk show host. It is the devil. There are. There is one devil. And there are many demons. They are at work in the world. Notice the plurality mentioned. But against powers. Rulers. Principalities. Spiritual wickedness in high places. So there is a large number. Now we don't know. How many the number is. But we can guesstimate. I guess you could say. So when Jesus was. Being taken. He said if he wanted to. He could summon more than 12 legions of angels to fight for him. Now if an angelic legion is similar to a Roman legion. Which it probably would have been. Then the number would have varied between 4200 and 5200. So the number of angels Jesus could have summoned. Would have been somewhere between 50 and a little over 60,000. That's just using the 12 not more than 12. So that's how many angels Jesus said there were. But then, in Revelation 12 and 4, we're told when Satan rebelled, he convinced one-third of the angels to join with him. So, the number of more than 12, that actually happens after Satan has already done his, his deception and led the angels astray. So, there is a lot. A lot. One-third of however many angels there are fell to earth with Satan in his rebellion and became demons who serve under him. And they, they work and they operate in the world. And, and that's what Scripture teaches here. But right? it calls them spiritual wickedness in high places. It calls them the rulers of darkness of this world. The darkness of this world refers to what is going on here and now. The darkness that we see in this world. When we see deep and abiding spiritual darkness, there's something behind it. And this is, again, a kind of a key thing. Demons and the evil spiritual powers, they don't just kind of rule up there somewhere and have nothing to do down here. They influence people and kings and nations and leaders. We find at least two examples in Scripture of God addressing kings... And addressing them as though they were Satan himself. Because Satan was the ruler behind them. So when we look at this world. And we see just an abundance of evil. Say why? Why is there so much evil in the world? I could say two reasons for sure. One. People are naturally depraved. And we do sinful things. Two. There are evil spiritual powers that influence people to do wicked things. And convince them it is fine and it is okay. They are at work throughout the world keeping people blind to the gospel, their need for Jesus and seeking to do all they can to draw people further and further to wickedness. The evil of man consumes the news reports every day. I mean, we don't have to go far. What's behind a group like Boko Haram that kidnaps young girls and sells them into sex slavery? Is that just people being people? Is there something more to that? What causes people to think it's okay to deliver a child and then kill it right before it's fully delivered? Where does that come from? Is that just people being people, or is that something more? What causes the world to tell us, a 10-year-old, a 5-year-old, that they're not smart enough to vote, and they're not smart enough to buy liquor, and they're not smart enough to join the military, and they can't buy weapons, and they can't buy cigarettes, but they have it all figured out about what they're going to be in life. And you should change their physiology. And you should change their hormones. Where does does that come from? Is it just people? Or is it something more? Make no mistake, it, it is something more. The wickedness of the world comes from natural human depravity, to be sure. But there are evil spiritual hosts Who work to make it worse. And to push people further and further away. C.S. Lewis famously wrote. There are two equal and opposite errors. To which our race can fall into about demons. One is to believe in their existence. Or to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe. And to feel an unhealthy and excessive interest in them. Another author quotes this and says. Either works to the enemy's advantage. If we disbelieve in their existence, it allows them to roam and work more freely among us. And if we take an unhealthy interest in them, we are focused on them and not on Jesus. Our goal in this last portion of Ephesians is not to have an unhealthy interest in the evil spiritual world. But neither is it to be ignorant about their existence. Our strength comes from the Lord. Our ability to overcome comes from our connection to Jesus. This will always be what we focus on, but we must know the reality of the war that's out there. Let's stand. Bow your heads and close your eyes. One of my commentaries gave this quote about the seriousness of the battle we're in. Remember, Paul said, We wrestle. So when we consider that the loser in a Greek wrestling contest had his eyes gouged out with resulting blindness for the rest of his days, we can form some conception of the Ephesian Greeks' reaction to Paul's illustration. The Christian's wrestling against the powers of darkness is no less desperate and fateful. We will not be able to stand unless we are intentionally preparing for them. We cannot be prepared... Apart from faith in Jesus. So, in this time that we have for a response, I want you to ask yourself, Am I sure I'm saved? You gotta know. I mean, if you have not repented of your sins, if you have not believed in Jesus, you are not gonna be strong in the Lord, the power of his might. You are gonna be taken captive by Satan to do his will. You just are. Everything has to start with you making a decision. Crying out to Jesus to save you. You must turn from your sin. You must turn to Jesus. You must cry out to Him. No one can make that decision for you. And secondly, if you say, I have repented, I have believed, I am saved. How is your relationship with Jesus? Are you as close to the good shepherd who has a rod and staff to defend us as you need to be? Or have you drifted? Have you kind of gone away a little bit. We must stay close. We must stay near. We must be connected to Him as a branch is to the vine. It is only then does the grace and the Spirit we need flow to us and give us the strength to fight and win spiritual battles. Let nothing stand between you and Jesus this morning. If you need to receive Christ you spend this time and you cry out to him if you need to reconnect with Christ you spend this time and you cry out to him